What's up, y'all? Welcome to episode eight of Facts, the podcast that brings you authentic stories and experiences from black and brown individuals. I'm your host, Kevin Carabayo, and thank you for tuning in. Helping me with today's episode is a dear friend, Fatima Mambro, who earned her MSW for NYU Civil School of Social Work and served as the team lead for volunteers at the 2018 National Association of Social Workers Conference in Washington, D.C. Earlier in her academic career, Fatima served as the social work club president for the York College Empowering and Encouraging Together Club, leading many projects. During 2015, she was instrumental in organizing and facilitating monthly meetings with executive officers and club members. Later on that year, she co-organized the annual Legislative Action Day in Albany, New York, in which she advocated for loan forgiveness, tuition reduction, extended tuition for assistance programs, and Pell Grants. Her passion for civil rights and social justice issues has provided her with opportunities towards her research on the intersection of racial identity and microaggression and social work practice. Fatima is now a research assistant at Silverman School of Social Work at Hunter College, studying families involved in child warfare and child mental health services, and is a Columbia SSW associate. First and foremost, thank you for being here. How you doing? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, no problem, man. Like, uh, you know, you are one of those individuals that I look up to and like you're doing amazing work and you are like, you know, that person who, you know, you paid the way for a lot of people such as myself. So I just want to acknowledge that for real. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you, Kevin. No problem. And this is kind of dive right in. What is like being an Egyptian American Muslim from Queens? What are some of the, you know, those customs and traditions that you grew up on? So I love talking about where I grew up in. Um, I grew up in Queens, New York, which is like a small business, community-based, um, immigrant working class pockets of like ethnic neighborhoods that I had opportunity to be exposed at at a very young age. Because of that diversity and the hustle of Queens, I kind of learned all the values, the hard work, sacrifice, um, the value of being connected cross-culturally, the language and the upbringing. And so I grew up in a very immigrant Egyptian household. Our household, we truly valued education. Um, education was our survival. Um, and where my dad worked extremely hard in the medical field and my mother working in the fast food industry. It was hard, but we were still committed to finding time in our, you know, to have our cultural values. My father would make his daily prayers while, you know, my mother would cook every Egyptian dish, especially during our holy month of Ramadan. And it was like this, this cultural experience where I went to public school, but then it was still very steeped into the Egyptian household. Got you. And because you mentioned that education piece, that how it was very important. And I think that's a good thing. Did some of your upbringings align with some of your values and principles of social work profession in a way? Yeah. So I think my story is a bit interesting because I lived in a political context growing up, like post 9-11 as a young Muslim woman. Growing up in working class, growing up as a woman of color, where there were all these different policies that really impacted my community and criminalized my community in various ways. Directly, I was impacted by school bullying. I was insulted by students and some teachers about my name and where I come from, almost like a resentment for what happened post 9-11. And in that moment, it left me incredibly vulnerable, especially with the school bullying really feeling alone, terrified, and filled with insecurities just based off of my name. And so fast forward to my father's passing. I was 21. 
when I lost my father due to cancer, but the process of his transitioning was like not only terrifying, but like traumatizing because the lack of resources um, and support based, like just based off his health insurance was just scary. And these experiences really propelled me on this path on social work practice, you know, that revolves around social justice related work. My journey didn't happen right away. It didn't, it wasn't like a fast ideation of, you know, process, but I started to connect with other mentor figures in the field of social work. And in the time I was really, I was already plugged into the political activism scenes um, in New York. And I had examples of mentors in my life that embedded social work with the, just the experience of social justice. And mm. I learned so much from them. And it just felt natural for me to pick up on it. And when you see a problem, there's a solution. And that's what I've learned throughout this journey. You know, I saw that model in my parents. I saw that model with people within my community. That's dope. And my question is, how did you cope? I know, like you said, post 9-11, also your father passing away. You know, that's a lot of like trauma right there in a short period of time. So like, how did you cope with those things? It was hard at first because I didn't acknowledge vulnerabilities, how powerful being vulnerable really is. And so I always show up, you know, in my presence, I always show up, whether it's at my mentor's you know, office or, you know, after class or maybe the social work club meetings that we used to, you know, have at your college. I just think leaning on to my support systems and not being afraid of opening up as a sign of weakness. And that really propelled me to just be authentic in my conversations with individuals. I think it's amazing how like like you was able to use that experiences to figure out what you really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And in regards to like doing social work, I think that's dope. So I feel like a lot of people, you know, from my perspective, they go into social work because they want to help you. They already have that background of like, yeah, I went through this. That's why I want to do it. You know? So I think that's what makes you different and unique in your own way. And that's what's going to make you like a great social worker. You feel me? Thank you, Kevin. No problem. What is it like attending a school like NYU Civil School Social Work that's predominantly white? Whew. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that was one year that we did, Kevin. That was one year. Um, you know, everyone is like, Fatima, how did you get from going to a CUNY school to an Ivy League as a working class student? And I'm like, word, I have no idea, you know, but most yeah. people say don't go to grad school directly from undergrad but i loved every experience of it because i was exposed to a lot of different intelligent and dope classmates and professors from across the globe but also faced many isolating challenges as a woman of color in a predominantly white school you know my first day of class i had a white classmate ask me what type of scholarship let got you here and i'm like oh okay, this is where we at. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is where I am. And to me, there was a lot of resources or there was not a lot of same resources being distributed to people, to students of color. And that was a real big issue for me. For instance, there was professors being very selective to student, to choosing students with opportunities of, you know, scholarship opportunities. And so like the financial aid office, for example, were very limited into, you know, broadcasting financial opportunities for low-income students. And, you know, people of color student-led events, and I've been a victim of this, where we had flyers up on the silver, you know, board, and it was constantly being taken down. And not once, not twice, not three times. It was about like, you know, you can say over 10 times. (laughs) As going through all of this, through my one year at NYU, I just felt a little fatigued because... 
I was always the person to make those speeches or to make those, you know, just to create a platform on panels or, you know, in any sort of classrooms about our suffering of people of color in these classrooms. Or, you know, it's like a better way to put it. It's a labor that we do for institutions' responsibilities. You know, and a great colleague of mine said, you know, run us our checks and waive the tuition for us to create that platform and to educate, you know, other scholars and other students. And so I realized that entering these spaces where, you know, when I enter a classroom, I'll never like the look of like, not to generalize all white people, but like just how they look at you. Like you're not treated as a peer. You're not treated as a student in the classroom. And there's so much work to be done just by that alone. So my experiences were the good and the bad, but it kind of shaped my character as what needs to be done. Most definitely. And some of the things that you did mention, I I experienced that also, but not to that extent. I feel like when I got accepted to NYU, right, they had mentioned, I think during orientation, that this was like the 2019 was the most diverse group of students that they had. And I'm just like, they don't look that diverse. I can only imagine when you went, right? So like, that's crazy. You know, I do recall like Gano's look, you know, me personally, I, I don't care. I look at, I look back at you. I'm like, yeah, I'm here. You feel me? I'm glad that you shared that. Cause, <laughs> you know, I feel like, no, honestly, yeah. I feel like a lot of students, that's one thing that stopped them from going to grad school. Cause they, they are scared or they are afraid of like how people might view them mm-hmm. and like them being the only person of color, you know, like I remember one time where I questioned, remember I, I hit you up one time and said, like, Hey, you know, this article popped up. You know what you think about that? You feel me? And I was kind of having doubts about going to a school where I'm gonna have problems. Like now, nah, but good thing that you know I spoke to you and you know, you know, I did some reflection. I'm just like, nah, I gotta, you know, I gotta like pave the way for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if mm-hmm. I don't do it, then you know, who else who else is gonna do it? Absolutely. What are some lessons that you learn and will forever be ingrained in your head? It could be you know during the time at NYU or just like before that or even now. The lessons I've learned were just not being afraid of being authentically myself. You know, when I come into these spaces, especially like NYU, I'm very observant and I'm observing for many reasons. I protect myself. I protect, you know, what could happen, like any confrontations or any misunderstandings. But I feel like that's, you know, it's, I shouldn't be afraid to really come out and just say how, you know, how I feel with certain things. So like, you know, when we go an example of like a passive microaggression, you know, in terms of confronting in a way where it doesn't have to be a confrontation. It can be, you know, what do you mean by that? Or I'm not really sure where you got that information from, or can you elaborate on that data? There's so many ways that I felt like I could have used that as a platform throughout my NYU journey. But it was scary because, again, it's an isolating feeling. Of course, you have other people of color, faculty, you have other people of color, classmates. But just really, you know, as long as you have your morals of, like, integrity and confidence, you're okay. You know, the same way you're you're receiving that behavior back, it's okay to, you know, respond to it in the most professional and dignifying, you know, manner. Most definitely. So when that line, you became interested in research reading peer-reviewed articles, writing articles, and so forth. What made you want to do research? So my first research experience was at Columbia School of Social Work Safe Lab with uh, Dr. Desmond Patton. I mean, just seeing in his element and passion amongst, you know, other academic researchers that were in that room has left me still mesmerized. Talking with him, I can, 
I came to a better understanding on how this racist assumption that people of color, especially our youth, is, are in serious dangers through algorithms, you know, and that was really, truly impacting, you know, very impactful to how he uses his research and his passion to make that change. And so I said to myself, that is powerful and dope. And that is a revolutionary change, you know, to our white supremacist world. You know, my research right now, like my research path is learning as much as I can from these academic scholars that I trust to help me build and gain the proper skills to hopefully one day be an empowering woman of color, professor, and uh, researcher. Yeah, and I think what you're doing now in regards to research is dope because you will have articles that are published that are straight up lies. And, you know, those articles are being used to influence, you know, policy and how, you know, things are implemented in communities such as, you know, people of color. And, you know, it could be like people get affected by mm-hmm. it, honestly. And I learned that, like, you know, through documentaries, through like um, people just, you know, telling me straight up, like, hey, this this, this policy was created because of this article and stuff like that. It happens over like, every every few years. It happens, you know. Somebody writes an article, and it's not true. You know, they they manipulate the the statistics behind it, and boom, you know, next thing you know, more people is getting arrested, or the case may be. Mm-hmm. But that's dope that you are doing like research. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, I just wanted to like add in that even you know in academia, it's not perfect. There's a lot of battles in like, you know, you're not treated as a scholar. You're not treated as if your work is monumental. And it's a continuous fight to just have your work being acknowledged and having just having that platform. You know, I was just reading on the statistics of, you know, tenure professors of, you know, people of color. And it's not a lot in these educational institutions. And that's an issue that we're in 2020 right now and we're lacking tenure, you know, people of color professors, and it's just kind of is a barrier to the success that we could bring. But then again, that's the fight in the system that we have to be, you know, ready for. So I 100% agree. Did you ever have second thoughts about conducting research? Because I know that's something that is, you know, is very complex and it could take a lot of time to do. Yes, always. <laughs> Doing <laughs> research in academia, like I said, is not perfect. I kind of saw firsthand experiences of being over-scrutinized, outright attacked. There will be colleagues who go out their way to just basically correct or undermine um, you in public. And it, dis- it kind of like feels like as if your ideas are being dismissed, your expertise, your achievements. And I think also it's an ageism thing. Because, uh, you know, when I graduated from NYU, I was 24. And just you're working with scholars who've been there like before you were born or like, a little bit yeah. longer. And so there's a battle here that we we always will conquer. But I think because I have a, such a passion for it, I'm able to this is this is my work. This is what I'm fighting against and this is what I'll share until, you know, I'm old and gray. Yeah, age is nothing but a number. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Can you talk about how you landed the role of being a research assistant at Superman School of Social Work at Hunter College? So uh, upon graduating from NYU, I was around in different job sectors, uh, trying to find my niche and most importantly, like stability. Um, I was a former psychotherapist and I remember thinking, wow, this isn't for me. And so I actively was searching academic faculties 
you know, on the the school's websites. And I came across this professor called, named Dr. Geetha Kapalin, and she does her work on qualitative research and um, child welfare and child mental health services. And she offered me the position of becoming her research assistant towards her research work. <laughs> so th- that experience, let alone, was gratifying because my experience after NYU was it, it was it was scary being a working class individual and just trying to find that stability. Cause as we know, social work can't cover, <laughs> you know, we don't go for it for the money, but it just felt like an alone and terrifying experience. I was, like I said, a former psychotherapist. And then I worked at the school. And then that's when I really encountered racial microaggressions within the school. And I left within six months because I couldn't take, it, it was a mental health issue for me. And you know, as a woman of color, I had to defend myself every day and make reports. I've never experienced making a report to HR than that particular experience. And so that kind of shaped me into what my research interest would be. And so I didn't give up. I didn't give up when searching for faculty because, again, there's a couple of research opportunities I applied for and I was denied left to right because I didn't have that enough. You know, I didn't have enough experience. But where the position where I am right now, I wouldn't take it for the world. And I wouldn't, I don't regret the the struggles and the steps getting there. Most of the work that you do there, is it qualitative based or? It's qualitative. (laughs) I I stay away from quantitative. I don't know how I'm going to survive in PhD schools. These programs are statistics. (laughs) I I don't know. But qualitative work, you know, I read articles and code all day. And it's just like a, it feels like a qualitative research boot camp. And I never thought mm. that research would be a career for me. And I see it as a long term. And yeah, so it's just basically qualitative. I'm so for the qualitative work. Admire that. I admire quantitative work, but not from my standpoint. But I can't do it. <laughs> Got you. What are topics in regards to research you feel most relatable to? I feel I'm mostly related to healing justice. You know, I, I think... I read articles as if it's a healing justice perspective. You know, I like to think of it as doing the work through healing and basically as a result to our struggles and hurt and looking at it through just evidence-based factual, you know, it's a curriculum, right? And it's a research as, like I view research as a change in a structural level. And so the research I'm doing now with Dr. Kapalin you know, I have these team meetings with other academic uh, scholars who are invested in this projects um, and this work. And I, you know, I present a lot of transfer of learning, scoping reviews work. Um, and basically transfer of learning is how we can look and read into articles that provide evidence-based um, work theories or um, work that has been implemented in organizations based on child welfare and child mental health services. And so we go on to many disagreements or agreements but that's for a great cause, right? We're looking for work that is viewed to for a future of how to better provide for our children, better provide uh, services for our children, especially low-income and marginalized communities where they are not gaining all the you know medical appointments or when they go into the medical office, how they're treated. So this is a really like a future perspective. And for me, I like I said, I view it as a healing justice. Because it's something that we can imply later in the future. 
And so like that kind of results in what I want to do in my own personal research, which is like the intersections of racial identity and microaggressions, which is underpinned through uh, policies and procedures within social work practice. And that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that also the positive change that comes out of that is accountability, especially in the healthcare industry, Mm -hmm. especially with practitioners, nurses, doctors, you know. Mm There's a lot of things that they do that's not really in a way that is therapeutic for, you know, the client that's coming in. You know, like there's a bunch of times where I went to a clinic and, you know, a doctor is just, you know, not having that human connection and just straight up saying like, hey, you're diagnosed or you have this. You got to come back. You know what I'm saying? There's no conversation. There's no dialogue. So a lot of people go to clinic in order to, you know, receive help. And sometimes they don't share what's really wrong with them because they don't have that. What's it called? Safe space. So I feel like what you're doing, that's one thing that's going to come out of it eventually, you know, um, organizations, you know, they're going to take these research or findings and incorporate it within their, you know, policies or infrastructure in a way. So mm-hmm. salute you. Can you talk about the research and finding on the intersection of racial identity and microaggression in practice? Yes. So the evolution of my research has happened in many ways, but if you look at... <laughs> microaggressions in the workplace affecting people of color, the statistics, you would find plenty and terrifying data. And you're like, how do we live in a world where people of color and, you know, who experience everyday biases still happens? And so my vision is how do we get the num- that number to one in 10, you know, or one in 15. And so I started noticing the gap to address and disrupt in our considerations of my- my- racial microaggressions. And I read this article, it's like a, the cause effective 2019 article that provides like a comprehensive report from survey data that suggests that, that following strategies to mitigate racism in the nonprofit fundraising sector, but could also be applied to general social work practice settings with the aim of addressing social, um, racial microaggressions, right? So just like is gold for me, what I, you know? And so the very first step is how to create a welcoming and a supportive environment, right? Especially for people of color. This is able to acknowledge issues of racism that this could be done in in concert with the strategies that Hardy, this article I read, that he identifies. You know, fundamentally all organizational players need to be involved in the efforts to stop microaggressions. So this work that I am heavily invested in is to have agency-wide buy-in and be conducted at all levels. Like, so such efforts may look like having education on leadership, on racial biases, and the impact of these behaviors um, and systems. So this could be specific to diversity. This can be specific to the efforts, the capacity to address systems in the context of power and race, oppression, and privilege. The consultant's ability to understand their positionality in such systems. So this is something that I'm heavily invested in because that's a research gap right there. There's, you know, reading along, it was really hard to find strategies and policies that can just simply intervene and, you know, diminish racial microaggressions or educate and inform, which is a big issue. And that's the stance I'm in with um, providing my own research. Yeah, I think that's dope. Right. You have people who, right, they're like, okay, no, that sounds good. Right. So my question is, how can you share information that allows people to fully comprehend you know, what you are trying to convey? 
because sometimes you know you an article is published, but not many people understand what is you know like what is saying or is trying to convey. So you know, what is ways that you try to to make people understand like, hey, this is important, and you know, I'm gonna use a language that makes it you know easy to understand. That's a really really good question, Kevin. I like to read a lot of books, and I say that because it helps me in dialogues. With individuals, it helps me answer questions, especially the question that you just asked me, right? So when I read, I, I like to read about the culture, the struggles, our healings, and just basically having these conversations into light, you know? And I noticed that intervening in these types of conversations, we all share a common theme, right? In particular, people of color, where we have deeply rooted past trauma. And like, if you're a child of immigrants, if you're a person of color, if you're a working class, there are similar types of messages that we are able to articulate as professionals, right? Just by having that space, whether it's in a classroom, you're having that discussion with a professor and 20 other classmates, whether it's in a workshop, whether it's at work during break time, you know, and so using those spaces, right? And, you know, I read this book and you probably heard of it. It's called our kids, the American dream in crisis, but the author is Robert Putnam, and he talks about social capitalism theory in the U.S. and how because there are not communities-based consistent structures, people really don't know each other. Like you can go to a, a gym, you can go to uh, have brunch, and you can go through something that's so impact like it's bad, right? But you don't have that network, you don't have that community. So that's dangerous. That's how you end up with poor community structures and support. And But being proactive about it and being authentically um, genuine in conversations seems really hard nowadays because it's like, what can you do for me? You know, what, how, what, what can I do for you? But what can you do for me? And we just have to get over it. We just have to like get over that because I feel like society and democracy is at stake. And we don't generally, we, we don't, you know, we don't generally invest in one another as we should be. So I try to engage and promote in these spaces to build communities through words of encouragement. And, you know, again, I'm an active student and like I'm still a student and I'm a learner and I love having these dialogues because you learn so much. Yeah. And I think, you know, what it is too, people don't see the bigger picture. That's what it is. And I think it's our jobs to bring that on um, reality a bit closer to them and say, Hey, yeah. this is real. You feel me? Mm-hmm. You are also a Columbia SSW associate. So, you know, can you talk more about that position and that role that you... Where can I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's definitely a wide awakening. Um, I My aspiration is to become a professor. So I wanted to take the small leap and being an associate, you know, co-teach with another professor who's been doing this for a long time. And... Just the platform of educating. I mean, the empowerment of lecturing a class for, with students listening to you and then also providing that opportunity for them to, you know, engage and ask questions and break out into groups and learn through each other is just very powerful. I wouldn't take that, you know, experience away at all. And so in a few weeks, I'll be an associate for a policy course, which would be, uh, decolonizing you know, social work, and we're doing it in the frames of, you know, Chinese immigrants, and we're doing it in the frames of racism in China, because our class, the students are predominantly international students. 
and what way to better talk about these conversations and discussions, especially during this pandemic, where racism against the Asian community is really, really, it's just sad. And so I am going to take as much teaching experience as I can before I completely delve into like adjunct positions or when I go into PhD programs and stuff like that. Okay, because right now you you working with somebody else, right? With the main instructor? Yes. Okay. So it's me, the main instructor, and the live support specialist. The live support specialist, because we, we conduct these online classes through Adobe Connect, the a live support specialist is basically like an IT person, but just creates the whole class foundation. So if the professor and I are working through a slides, like the style or how to do poll questions, or breakout groups, we send that to um, the life support specialists. And then we have pre-flight meetings before the class starts. And uh, we just, they create this whole layer of the classroom on Adobe Connect, which is pretty dope. It's pretty cool. That's fancy. That's <laughs> fancy. <laughs> what is like teaching a group of students? Like, are you know, were you intimidated when you first started? Uh, there was, interestingly... You know, I, this is, a, it's funny because, um, my first class experience, there were a couple of students that they, um, challenged topics that, uh, dealt with racial justices, um, inequalities, and it didn't come from a white student. And so this particular student didn't come from social work. It took, she, t uh, this student took this class, um, as an elective for, uh, her other program. And so it was interesting to have this uh, dialogue and conversation because the student expressed trauma, triggering of, about these conversations. And so we really, I really delve into the professor and the life support specialist. We always, we always want to make sure that we provide the effective and most safe educational experiences for all students. And plus, we are women in this platform, women of color, women of different, uh, you know, that sexually identify as what the norm doesn't expect us to be and we understand oppression and trauma in all sorts of forms and so being able to be in that space from the other side was interesting and also being called by my first name and being called by you know which is not a problem and not an issue but I know women of color we tend to have issues with not being called or, or the appropriate credentials if you must say so it was intimidating in that aspect, but it was more of an empowering piece because we were able to sit down with these students and we're able to talk to these students about just, you know, keeping it real. Like this is this is what's happening. This is how we perceive it. This is how we perceived your your feedback. So it was very intimidating, but nonetheless, it's very good because that's a platform where you give to educate and inform students. Okay. How did you run the class? Because I know, like, from my experience, a lot of professors have their own way of, you know, of teaching. And one of the teaching style that I hate is when a professor read off the slides or read from the textbook, you know? <laughs> so, like, to me, it's like, there's no point of coming to class because I already read the book. And, you know, so so what, what teaching style did y'all, um, did you guys use? That is so funny, Kevin, because I share that so much. I just, there was a couple of experiences where someone was reading an index card in front of me and I'm like, wow. <laughs> but we always have discussions beforehand with every topics for every week. And 
like make an example for throughout this pandemic, we went through um, exercises, mindfulness exercises. And so I led that. Um, I led mindfulness exercises. I led, we have student spotlights where every week we will have a student come on camera and just answer others on the poll question, answer other students' questions they have for their classmates. That's a way to get interacting, especially through the virtual online campus part. Like you're interacting with other students. And it was pretty dope, but um, we don't read off of the slides. We really, okay. what, like it's based off of the knowledge we know about the topic. And to be honest, I wasn't familiar too much with human behavior and social environment in which that was the first course that I was teaching at. And um I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of article readings that were suggested prior um, when class started and familiarized myself with the material. And so just articulated myself. And when I spoke, when I did a lecture on racial microaggressions, I didn't need no index. I didn't need, no, <laughs> I didn't need no to, notes to read off of because that's something that I uh, worked on for quite some time. And it's just passion. You know, we spoke of passion. <laughs> How did COVID nineteen change the class down dynamic and the vibe? A lot. It was, uh, you know, there were students that was going through a lot of issues that would email me, that would talk to me about things that they were going through, and it was a lot. I mean, there was one one week where we were dealing with a lot of uh, heavy traumatic experiences, but I would have discussions with the professor and as well the life support specialist to have healing music because we provide music before the class starts. So I log in about 30 minutes before class starts to answer any questions on Adobe Connect. We play some music. Um, they call me like the DJ. So it's like, you know, healing music to help get us in our feelings. And I remember I, I had this song. I can't remember the, the music, you know, the name of the person that sung it, but like, I think it was called River. And um, one of the students was like, I'm going to cry. This is this is so well needed to hear these lyrics. And also when I come up on camera before class starts, I want to show that I connect and that you can see me. You know, this is not just behind the screen and answering students questions, but also having mindfulness. And we have a chat box. So it's always engaged with discussion. So as we're doing mindfulness, breathing, um, meditation, students are really authentically sharing their experiences through this pandemic you know and it's terrifying it's terrifying to know because again this is i'm working with students that are, are living in texas are living in somewhere upstate you know and th this it's terrifying to see their end of it and their experiences of it but we open that platform that it's okay to have this these types of discussions in the classroom that we see you as an individual and it's also a way for them to take that torch wherever they go in their social work careers. Yeah, I think that's dope because some professors, you know, from my experience, like, you know, they, they, they continue teaching the course as if nothing is going on in the outside world. And I feel like, you know, when students are coming into class through Zoom, you see any phase, mm -hmm. you know, you can tell by the energy. And I feel like that is great that you did that because it changed the dynamic. It changed the conversation and, you know, it, it brings it things into more of a, like a real time. You know, and I feel like students appreciate that because you are validating and acknowledging their feelings, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's awesome, honestly. Thank you. Lastly, what is one advice that you could give to the audience out there that's tuning in? Um, any words of encouragement, especially during these times? Don't give up. I can say this countless of times. Do not give up. 
you know, these experiences will make us stronger and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to feel defeated. It's okay to feel helpless. There are many times where, you know, personally, I would wake up and feel like, what am I doing? You know, I have a loan to pay. I have bills to pay. What am I doing? But then I forget and I have to, you know, then remind myself my purpose. So always align with your purpose. And whether it's positive affirmations every day, um, whether it's leaning on your uh, networks, your support networks, finding your purpose and being reminded that this is where you need to be and this is the the process of where you need to be. That's dope. If someone wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to, to do so? So I'm very open. So you can, like, my Facebook, if you probably Google my name, Fatima Mabruk, I hopefully I'll be, like, the first person with, like, Afro curls that will pop up. <laughs> <laughs> or my LinkedIn. When you Google my name, hopefully my LinkedIn pops up and connect with me. My email, which is my last name, Mabruk, Fatima, one at gmail.com. Yeah, and I hope to hear from people. All right. Thank you. I want to thank you for coming. It was it was amazing. Thank you, Kevin. This was really dope. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Remember, you can connect. Follow us on our social media pages to stay updated. Links will be provided in episode notes. Thank you for tuning in. Remember this. This is the only podcast that speaks facts.